Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. I'm the pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, also part of the Great Commission Collective. GCC is the organization that is bringing The Bounce to you. This is a podcast for pastors and church planters. If you're not familiar with the Great Commission Collective, our mission is to plant churches and strengthen leaders. We have hundreds of churches domestically and internationally that are being planted, gospel-rich, gospel-centered churches. You can find out more about the Great Commission Collective by going to our website, which is gccollective.org. Again, it's gccollective.org. On this episode of The Bounce, we're going to hear about a man who has been an active church planter since the time when God had him plant a church in Manhattan back in the late 1980s. That, of course, is Dr. Tim Keller. Colin Hansen has just written a new biography of Tim Keller. And the thing that is unique about this biography is it focuses on Tim Keller's spiritual and intellectual formation. I think there's a lot we can learn by seeing how God helped shape Tim Keller's thinking And uh, this conversation with Colin is one that I enjoyed because I really enjoyed his book. Colin, welcome. Oh, thanks, Bob. Glad to be here. I finished the book yesterday. I loved the book. I loved the fact that it was a treatment of what formed and shaped Tim's thinking, his practice, as, as you describe in it, less of a biography and more of an exploration of his development as a thinker, as a pastor, as a theologian, and as somebody who has been marked by his ministry, both personally and as a pastor. It was helpful for me to kind of dig through and find the origin of a lot of that. I want our focus here to be on the chapter in his life where he is being called from Westminster Seminary to plant a church in New York and what happened there, because we're speaking to pastors and church planters. And there's a quote in the book where Kathy Keller says, if you want to plant a church, the best thing to do is find out where a revival is going to break out and then move there a month later or a month earlier or something like that. And, and I thought, okay, that's that's good advice, but uh, I'm not exactly sure how to follow that. Here's my question. As you dug into Tim's life, how much of what happened at Redeemer in New York in the 90s when he moved there, how much of that is because of what God was doing already in New York, and how much of it was because of who Tim Keller is, his unique gifting, and what he brought? I mean, both both contribute but which, which has more weight, do you think? Well, it's such a good professional question right there, Bob. And I'm going to give the, the standard answer to both. But let me explain what I mean. So um, when you talk to Tim and you talk to his wife, Kathy, about that situation, they are very quick to credit other people. And they're very quick to credit God above all. I love what Kathy says, that, that nobody in the history of the church has written whinier, more pathetic church appeals than she did, and that no church in the history, in all of history, was prayed over more by women, um, the support of women in the Presbyterian Church in America in particular in there. So between what you mentioned there about the revival, which was largely done through kind of a, a joint effort between what Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, was doing in that area, with evangelism throughout the 1980s, even go back in the 1970s, but then also a political and economic transformation that was coming to New York City. Changes in finance law, and then ultimately changes in politics and crime and things like that that a lot of us are familiar with under Mayor Giuliani in the 1990s leading up to September 11th. So there were a lot of those external 
factors that, that were going on. And the Kellers, though, they're, they're very quick to say this was a revival, which it was, and, and God did this. But one thing that really stood out to me was that when people talked to me about what Tim did, the meetings he had with them, believers, with non-believers, it actually took me back to the first revival he was ever a part of, going back to his junior year at Bucknell University through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And his friends talked about how, I mean, he wrote every single, or he, he and kind of the other leader, but mostly him, wrote every single incoming freshman at Bucknell, inviting them to come to InterVarsity. And then he followed up with as many of them as he could. He'd get these, these little cards and he'd go around campus following up with people. There is always the effort there. There was always strategic thinking, always intentionality. But I guess that's what revival is, where that intentionality meets that divine spark. And it takes the, the logs of that intentionality and sparks it into a flame uh, that none of us could quite plan ourselves. You mentioned in the book that there were other pastors and other works that were happening. Skip Ryan, what he was doing. There was something going on, and yet the, the revival in New York feels a little localized to what God was doing at, at Redeemer. It's like there was something very unique to who Tim Keller was and his his contextualization, and we can we'll talk about that word here in a few minutes, but but his ability to listen and to understand and to be missional in the New York culture that I'm not sure other pastors had that unique secret sauce that that God had built into Tim. I think, Bob, that we we live on the other side of of that success where contextualization is a pretty widespread teaching. It wasn't quite that way in the 1980s, and it was really more confined to the areas of, of missiology. The key transformations there were the Jesus movement for the 60s and 1970s, and then Luzon, um, and how those different streams converged. And then you add in there the missiology of people like Leslie Newmigan saying, hey, we actually have to go back and think like missionaries in the West. So Tim was definitely a vanguard of that. When Redeemer started in 1989, there were certainly other strong, well-led evangelical churches. Now, in New York, they were still small. And you're looking against the backdrop of a 19th century, the 1800s, when New York was the Protestant capital of the world. Even into the 20th century, I found one source that identified that 25% of people on the Upper East Side were church-going evangelical Christians. That's the early 20th century. By mid-century, I mean, that has collapsed. And so even the fact that there were a few works in Manhattan, then that, that was significant with some young, energetic, gifted pastors. But yes, the growth that Redeemer Presbyterian Church experienced from hundreds past a thousand pretty quickly in that environment was not something that was common during that time. It was localized to a certain extent. How much of that is because Tim was smart enough to listen? He talks a lot about that. And how much was just his intellect in being able not only to listen, but to make sense and then apply the gospel in that situation? Yeah, Bob, when I went to do the research for this, I thought I would find, uh, knowing Tim, I'd find a, I thought I'd find a library of books that he read and studied before going to, going to New York. Uh, that wasn't what people said. It wasn't what he said either. There were some things out there that I got to toy with in the book, like uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities that helped to set the stage for the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the 1980s. But generally, people kept coming back saying, he just 
sit there and ask questions from people. He would just listen. He'd ask missionaries. He made fast friends with people like Glenn Klanknecht, who'd already been there for you know a decade uh, with with crew. That's one reason why Tim and Kathy moved to Roosevelt Allen. They were there. Talked with uh, people like uh, Marlene Hux, who had been a missionary in Ireland and had come back there to do campus work and, and evangelistic work there. So he would just sit there and pick the brains of everybody and ask questions. And uh, and then especially his methodology appeared to be he'd ask the questions and then that would invite questions from people back. He would go back and he'd study to try to develop those questions. And that gave the pre- his preaching a sense of, I guess, concreteness, that he wasn't just exploring abstract concepts, but he was answering the actual questions that people were asking in that time and in that place. You mentioned the contextualization. As much as we think of Tim Keller as a as a global church leader for that career from eighty nine to twenty seventeen, he really always thought of himself primarily as a New York City pastor who's very highly contextualized in that sense. You and I know about the the debate over that term and the pastors who would say contextualization is we we shouldn't even consider contextualization. I heard one pastor say, "I preach the same Bible text." the same way when I go to South Korea that I preach in my home church, and that's how it ought to be. The Bible speaks clearly. We don't need to worry about contextualization. And yet I said, well, do you use an interpreter when you go there? Because the language is different. And he said, well, sure I do. And I said, well, that's contextualization. So the the word has a broad meaning, but Tim seemed to zero in on every culture. You have to be a student of your culture to be able to apply the gospel in whatever culture you're in. Let's use the South Korea example right there. That was a formative lesson for Tim Keller because one of his mentors was Harvey Kahn, who'd been a missionary in Korea. And Harvey Kahn came back and he said to Presbyterians, hey guys, our theology is great. The Westminster Confession, it's wonderful. I wholeheartedly support it. Here's the problem though. I just came from Korea. I got a lot of people asking me questions about ancestor worship, about their relationship to their parents. And you know what? That wasn't an issue when the Westminster Confession was being written and where it was being written. There's nothing in here about that. What am I supposed to say? It's not so much, Bob, as you know, about changing the Bible message or changing the gospel. That's not what it's about at all. It's about applying that multifaceted gospel and the whole counsel of scripture to the actual situations that people are in and connecting them back to that gospel and to the answers and the hope that is found in Christ is revealed in his word. So there's a spectrum of contextualization. There's plenty of people out there who give it a bad name and and I wouldn't want to be associated with that and Tim wouldn't want to be associated with that. But I do think he's a pretty good model of how to do that effectively while staying rooted in the unchanging gospel and the unchanging word. I heard him say one time, he said, 50 years ago, when you're talking about sin, you could say sin is a transgression of the moral law of God. And who hasn't done that? He said, you can't say that anymore and have it make sense to postmodern New Yorkers. He said, now I, I start by saying, do you feel like the world is broken? And everybody nods their head. And he says, do you feel like your own life is broken? Everybody nods their head. And then he says, how did we get that way? And that's his entrance into an exploration of sin. And I heard people critique that saying he's trying to redefine sin. That's really an unfair critique, isn't it? Well, let's just take, I think, probably the most significant innovation that he delivered in contextualization along those lines. It's his focus on idolatry. This is Augustinian. This is, um, I mean, it's 
it's Jesus, it's Paul, it's it's the moral law handed down by Moses from God. It's Luther. Luther was very clear in saying you can't break any of the other nine, ten, nine of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first. You shall have no other God before me. If you look back, Bob, on the first three major books that Tim published after 2008, you have Reason for God, you have Prodigal God, and then you have Counterfeit Gods. When, you're, when you haven't published for a long time, but you're a good writer, when you come out with some books, they usually tend to be the ones that you think are the most important for your legacy. And Reason for God is, is answering all these apologetic questions that had accumulated over decades for him. Prodigal God is his autobiography of grace, and Counterfeit Gods is his introduction to using the concept of idolatry to help people to understand that they are sinners, that they have broken that, ten, that first commandment because they have put something or someone ahead of God, and that's why their lives have fallen apart. I think that was kind of his signature contribution, so far at least, on contextualization. And, and then as a pastor, it is part of our job to try to diagnose what are the prevalent idols in whatever culture we're in and bring the gospel to bear on those idols. And to the extent that that's contextualization, it seems that the Apostle Paul <laughs> was a contextualizer. Uh, in, in fact, I remember, I think it was in Center Church that I, I read Tim saying, read the the seven evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, right. And, and you see the gospel applied seven different ways in seven different cultures. Yeah, it's not the same message exactly. It's the same Savior. It's the same gospel, but it is not the, it's not the same message. And that's why you can see just basically, the thing you know, Bob, and your listeners know, is that two people can look at the exact same text and have the exact same theology, preach essentially the same message, but in totally different ways ways. That's a beautiful thing. That's why God gives us preachers. It's a wonderful thing in there. And you know what? As your listeners also know, you don't preach the same sermon at, say, age 35 that you do at age 65. You, you change yourself in there as well. So part of that's just, that's just contextualization, too. It's, it's God speaking to humans through other humans His divine message. You mentioned Harvey Kahn, who was a professor at Westminster when Tim was there, and it seems like n not only was he saying we have to address things that are uh, that are culturally relevant, but it, Harvey Kahn maybe more than anybody else influenced Tim's view of how you engage the culture on a on a social um, a, a caring level. Uh, if we're bringing both truth and grace, here's how we bring grace into the conversation. If, if you think about the, the missionaries' experience, a lot of the dichotomies that we struggle with of mercy ministry versus gospel proclamation, doing justice is, first of all, obedience to God and His, and his clear command in the Word, but also in, a, in this world, it's a way of helping people to understand the gospel. It's a bridge to the gospel that saves them from their sin and for eternity. So you know, Harvey was very instrumental in that as, as well, of course, of just helping Tim to understand the significance of the urban movements uh, around the world. I think many of us as pastors would say that mercy ministry is not a strength for the work that we're doing, that for modern evangelicalism, mercy ministry is not what we're known for, not a strength. Tim has tried to lean into that and be an advocate for that, but it doesn't seem like we're we're catching on to that as as well as we need to be. I, as a pastor, I'm trying to think how do I do this when my skill set and my passion is is more uh, teaching and preaching than it is 
uh, d- doing outreach and mercy ministry. Speak to that. Tim wasn't usually out there on the soup kitchen lines, so <laughs> he wouldn't be able to write what he wrote and preach what he preached without that. Uh, but a lot of people don't know this, but Tim's academic work is in the history of the Presbyterian diaconates in several cities, uh, post-Reformation, post-Reformation in Europe. And so he saw the church getting back to mercy ministry as a key aspect of what we should be doing. Now, what happened, though, is because these churches after the Reformation did so well in caring for the needs of the widow, the orphan, the poor, that we actually believe that it was so important we should entrust major resources from the government to do these things. So it actually came out of these movements, these government provisions that came from Christians in the Reformation and then also earlier Byzantine Empire, things like that. But so one reason why we we're not very good at it is because there's actually meant much more support in our culture than there was in many previous generations. And that's actually evidence of Christianity's leavening positive influence on our culture. Um, but I wouldn't say that every pastor, we know we just can't do everything. Um, we're not gifted at everything. Tim is certainly not gifted at everything. None of us is gifted at everything. But we have an opportunity through our teaching to be able to mobilize, to equip every believer in the body to do these good works. And so that, uh, that might be exactly our motivation and our calling, at least our role, is to preach the gospel and equip people to go and do those works themselves. So if you were talking to a young church planter and saying, here's what you can learn, here's how you can apply what Tim did well in the area of mercy ministry as you go out to plant, he's thinking about putting a small team together and having regular meetings and casting a vision for what our church can be. And he's he's probably not thinking mercy ministry is going to be a huge part of that. How does he learn from Tim and apply that in his context? Well, I think you already gave part of the answer right there, but then also it doesn't have to be part of your church. There's nothing to stop anybody from going doing this on their own as the church scattered. It doesn't have to be the church gathered that's doing doing that work. Perhaps the church's primary, well, we know the church's primary focus should be preaching the word and, and those aspects of, of discipleship that come directly from that. Tim has always been a, a, a strong advocate of integration between faith and work, a high view of vocation. So most of our Christian activity is not inside the church walls. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be doing throughout the entire week. So there are many, many, many ways that we can seek justice and help the poor and engage in that mercy ministry through the equipping of, our, of the saints under our care, and they're scattering throughout the week, motivating them and helping them to see how their faith connects to their work. As, as I read the book, Colin, I, I thought in an alternate history, maybe even what we would map out as a more likely trajectory, Tim goes from Hopewell to Philadelphia. He's on the staff at Westminster. He's in what we could think of as his dream job. He has taken over for the man who was his mentor, Ed Clowney. He's in an academic environment where the life of the mind is what he's going to thrive there. In an alternate universe, he stays at Westminster, becomes the endowed chair or the president of Westminster, and we know him as that academic genius and giant. I thought he was a reluctant church planter, and it, it must have been God saying, no, this is my plan for you. And he kind of went a little kicking and screaming into it, didn't he? He did. When we look back on this, Tim was an exceptionally gifted professor. Nobody should be surprised by that. He, many people would describe his preaching as, as professorial, 
in tone. I talked with uh, one of his longtime colleagues who said, yeah, we'd have these mentor groups and the students would all just sort of leave our groups to go to Tim's group. <laughs> he said, we didn't mind because we understood. You know, he was only 39 years old when he went to Redeemer. We can understand that a lot would have changed if he'd been writing academic works from, say, age 40 to age 60, instead of being a pastor for 15 plus of those years and then going on and writing these books. But of course, he'd started out as a pastor. And that was, that was the original calling. He felt called to that even going back to, to college. And Hopewell was a place, a small place that really transformed his ministry and set a certain trajectory. Now he burned out. You're completely right, Bob, that we could easily see him pursuing that academic career for the rest of his life. And, and that would have been fascinating. But in reality, it was an exception to his career. He had been called as a pastor. He'd worked as a pastor and needed to find some ways to do it in a more sustainable ma you know, manner, and also a place that I think was ultimately a better fit for the unique gifting that he had. But um, I don't think, I think even all of us who know Tim and admire Tim, he's not your Hollywood cutout of a pastor. He's not central casting for a pastor, right? Um, he has more of that professorial tone. And so, you can see some of the reluctance in there. It's not easy for anybody to pastor. It's not easy to be a church planter. It's not easy to go to New York City to be a church planter. It's not easy to go to New York City to be a church planter when you got three young boys. You can understand a lot of reasons why he was reluctant, but um, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite a Nineveh call by any means. He really developed a love for New York, even amid his reluctance and trying to find anybody else to go do the job instead of himself. And I will say this also, Dick Kaufman was a good friend of his. He's still alive, but in a late stage uh, dementia. But Dick came as the first executive pastor. Dick and his wife, Liz, had known Tim and Kathy through Jack Miller's ministry in Philadelphia. Dick had the resume to be that pastor. He was the more, mo most logical example, very different personality from Tim. And what's so interesting is that they're just in the assessments that Tim was not really seen as being the best fit. He was not sort of like the hard-charging Wall Street type alpha male leader that they thought that they needed there. The way it worked out was I talked with Liz Kaufman, uh, Dick's wife, about this, and she said, yeah, it just turned out it was a good fit. We didn't, it just wasn't what we expected. God seemed to know what he was doing on that one, huh? Yeah, it just it <laughs> did not seem to be a good a good match. I mean, New York is an artistic place. It's a it's a Wall Street place. It's you know, if you think about Tim's, uh, you know, he did his education at Gordon Conwell in Boston. You'd think Boston would have been a better fit for him in a lot of ways, but that's what what God saw best. The the influence of C.S. Lewis on both his life and Kathy's life, and Lewis's apologetic approach influenced him heavily, his first book, Reason for God. That's part of what made him fit into the Manhattan culture is that he was always trying to think, how do we defend what we believe in a way that's intellectually credible in, in this culture? In fact, I remember, you, you may have seen this in your research for the book, Tim got invited to speak at Google in the Authors at Google event, and he did his 25-minute message from Reasons for God. And as soon as he opened it up for questions, there were people flooding the, the microphone who were ready to try to take down the, this author. And I remember watching that, Colin, and thinking, here's what I'm learning 
Tim didn't become immediately combative with those people. In fact, he said to many of them, you know, you make a really good point, and there's a lot we we need to think about in what you're saying. And then he would gently offer his apologetic critique. And um, it, it was masterful, not only from a content standpoint, but from a, a, a technique standpoint. It's something I learned a lot from, and I think something we can all learn a lot from in a day when hot takes are what get you, uh, you know, retweets on Twitter. Well, it's it's his personality. I think that's that's a helpful thing to be able to observe. It's his spirituality for sure, his humility, but it is also his his uh, temperament. He's not the bombast. Oddly enough, he did challenge his professors, but he challenged his professors in writing, um, not so much with wanting to argue with them in class. But what people would tell me is he'd go after class and he'd redo the lectures in his dorm room for anybody who wanted to listen afterward. So he just has that kind of non his instinct is is never to confront directly. It's always to jump from somebody's objection to a broader sort of abstract idea and then to bring it back concretely. And um you know his he comes by his his method honestly he learned he learned the concept of ask anything uh from RC Sproul at Legionnaire Valley Study Center and he had these gab fests he'd you could ask RC anything Tim took that to Hopewell he'd have Sunday night gab fest anybody could come for hours one of their good friends um uh Lori Howell told me that if you didn't have a question Tim would supply hundreds <laughs> If you didn't know what to ask, he had a he had a list of things that he wanted you to ask, and they would just talk for hours. Keep in mind, Bob, he'd preach that morning, he'd preach that evening, and then it was an all hours gab fest. Ask any Tim anything thing, and then he took that to Redeemer. He would stay after services and open it up for anybody to ask questions. So he's got a little bit of experience with that and, and tell life. everybody how the gab fest would end how tim knew That's it was time best, to yeah, end i love it. that <laughs> yeah you know kathy kathy comes down in her nightgown and says that's it everybody's gotta go home <laughs> this is your signal <laughs> you know tim wouldn't shut it down it would have to be kathy <laughs> um in recent years, maybe throughout his ministry, but it seemed to have intensified a bit in recent years, the, the criticism of Tim from some of his evangelical brethren who would say he's too squishy, he's to hear the term liberal applied to Tim is kind of like, do you, you know what that word liberal really means? But but two questions. First of all, what's your take on, on that critique of him and how that's playing out. And then how is Tim, he's, he's not immune to that. He's aware that he's being critiqued in the public square. The, the politicization of evangelicals is not really a new thing. I mean, it, it goes back all the way through American history, all the way through. So I'm not going to pretend like what we've seen since 2016 is, is novel at all. I can just say this, going back through Tim's life, I didn't find anything related to politics. It just did not ever seem to be something that he was interested in. You know, a lot of, you'll find a lot of people out there. My background, I worked in politics. I worked on, on Capitol Hill. Um, I thought for a while that that might be what I would do, run campaigns and things like that. 
you'll find a lot of people like me in evangelical um, circles who we don't talk a lot about politics because of some of the problems, but we really do follow closely and we care a lot about what's happening. That is not Tim, not that I have ever seen from him, not a single conversation he's had with me. I'm sure others have, but if you ask me, you know, asking me about Tim's political views is a little bit like asking me about my grandparents' uh, political views. I don't know what they were. They just didn't, they just didn't talk about them. And so I think that's why people think that he's, that he's liberal because they're very highly mobilized and politicized. And he's not saying you should be liberal, but he's not saying you should vote for this candidate. Or um, and, and I would say also he's not particularly driven by the political issues that have animated evangelicals for the last number of, of decades. I think if people want to criticize Tim for not speaking out more on abortion, I think that's probably a fair criticism, especially when I'm just saying that personally. Um, and, uh, and especially in New York, given the rates and given the challenges there in particular, um, it's not that he never spoke about it. I'm just saying if you want to criticize him for not saying more about it, I can understand that. Um, but uh, he's, he's certainly aware of it. Just this week, we were talking about the odd criticism of him as being a registered Democrat. And he said, Colin, just remind everybody that you don't get to vote in anything meaningful for the my city unless you're a registered Democrat because there are no effective Republican primaries for anybody winning. So you're, you're, you're choosing between one left option and another further left option or whatever you want to say. So if you care about your city, you do care about which candidate gets there and there's not going to be any candidate you completely agree with. So he's aware of that. And, um, and he, you know, he tries to respond to it on Twitter. I'm not sure that's very effective, but Hey, is is he, (laughs) is he thick skinned about it or does it, do the wounds come? Well, I would say it's it's a little bit complicated because he he is he is thick skinned. I don't think you could be a pastor. I don't think anybody listening here, you guys all know, you cannot survive as a pastor unless you're you're thick skinned, thick skinned and big hearted. Um, you just, you can't make it. At the same time, I it, Tim has been very open about the fact that he does not like conflict, and he um, struggles with a with a fear of man. I don't mean I don't hear that from him to say he uniquely struggles with that. I think he's just one of the few leaders of his caliber who's open about admitting that kind of thing. So I would say, yeah, I mean, he's used to it, but at the same time, he doesn't like conflict. He doesn't like people not liking him. I think we'd be treating him as less than human to pretend like anybody loves to be criticized about about stuff. The 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 theological issue where I think he has come most under critique, maybe beyond contextualization, is what he stated in The Reason for God and his belief in old earth uh, creation. Um, and, and there are those who have dismissed him as a result of that. You didn't talk much in the book about how he came to that other than his relationship with Francis Collins maybe being influential in that. What formed his thinking to take him to that place theologically? The oddity here is, so this is a similar dynamic of where everybody wants to put you in a really clear camp. This is just, just look, if we wanted to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture or 
women's roles in the church or penal substitutionary atonement or justification by faith alone, whatever you want to say there, Tim's very clear about what camp that he's in. It's like, well, I'm in the Reformed camp on, on all these things or the complementarian camp or whatever. When it comes to evolution, that there's just not there's not a camp for Tim because he disavows theistic evolution. That's not his view. Um, so he differs from his friend Francis Collins on that. Um, but he also and he also believes in a special creation of Adam and Eve. In fact, that was something the Gospel Coalition explicitly put into our confessional statement was about Adam and Eve as the father and mother of all humanity. Well, that is certainly not the view of most Christians who hold some evolutionary concepts in there. But he's also definitely not young earth. Uh, So that's just, and in fact, Tim has very few connections. This This is interesting. Maybe some of your listeners will pick up on what I'm getting at here. Tim was very much formed by post-war British evangelicalism, not by American evangelicalism, which is especially heavily influenced in the 20th century by the fundamentalist modernist controversy, where evolution was one of the primary concerns. British evangelicals didn't have that debate in the same way that Americans did. And it's not to say that they're liberal or compromised or whatever. It's just that the arguments take different shapes in different places. You could look at inerrancy. It's another example of an issue like that. Um, and so you'll find a lot of issues where you think, well, what is, what, what, you know, where did Tim Keller fall down on, you know, fall on this issue or, or that side of whatever debate? Well, I mean, it just doesn't really fit the way a lot of the British evangelicals would not have fit into the American context on certain um, kind of shibboleth issues of the early uh, 20th century. So that's a long answer to your question, but the best, I, best context I can give for, for how he developed those views. We are now more than 50 years past the death of C.S. Lewis, and he's still widely read, widely quoted. His books endure. Do you think 50 years from now, and not that we're, we're at the death of Tim Keller, but do you think that in, an, in two generations, will Tim be one of the 20th, 21st century leaders who's still being quoted and cited uh, by by believers. Yeah, I do. I I think that at the very least, I think we can see Tim in the same category that we see J.I. Packer or we see John Stott um, at the very least. And thanks be to God, the wonders of of writing and books and and teaching the Bible, <laughs> all these basic, wonderful, fundamental things that doesn't go out of style. Um, so at some, at some level, insofar as people are still picking up Packer's works and still picking up Stott's works, I'm so grateful for them. I think they'll still pick up, pick up Tim's. Um, one difference though, between the two of them is, is, um, between the two of them and Tim is that Tim did a, a good bit of theology and certainly preached for all those years. But Tim also, most of his writing is, um, his major books are topical. And so, I don't know. Will there be a better book book on marriage written in the next fifty years? I mean, I hope so. But his book is pretty good, and unless something radically transforms Western notions about marriage, which is possible, that book will continue to be really helpful as a as God's word in season. And then you look at things like prayer or forgiveness or suffering or a lot of those things. I I just don't think that stuff is gonna 
it's going to go out of style anytime, anytime soon. Um, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think they will. And I, I can see myself continuing to recommend those books, hopefully at least for a few more years. And with that in mind, for those who may say, you know, I've heard the name, I've never read anything Tim Keller has written. Uh, what do you say is that, where do you go first? Prodigal God, for sure. Um, it's a shorter book. Um, it's, it's profound in its insights on the nature of grace and its application of that transforming power of the gospel. And it's his, it's his autobiography. Um, people don't know that, but um, I guess I do now. Uh, it's his autobiography. It's his own story. And if you read that book and you read my book, next to it, and you look at Tim's childhood, you'll understand. Uh, you'll understand his childhood, and you'll understand his personality. And, uh, you know, just like we've been saying, Bob, that there, God's truth is mediated to us through our experiences and through people. And, um, you know, that's, that's the way Luther's experiences were of the gospel, so profoundly mediated through his particular personality. Now that people know more, really for the first time, about Tim's childhood, Tim's growing up, Tim's personality. I think my, people might be surprised to, to hear how argumentative and demonstrative he was um, in his college years, how much he loved to argue with those Christians. His best friend said he would flail his arms around and smash walls and stuff like that. It was extremely outgoing, extroverted. Um, but I think, um, I think people are going to understand um, when, they, when they put those, those two things together. Well, that's the book that has marked me more than any others that he's written. It exposed my own self-righteousness in a fresh way and and uh, and added to my understanding of the gospel in a profound shaping way. So whether whether it's Tim's autobiography or not, in some ways, it's a lot of our autobiographies. And oh, as we read it, we, we just go, it. yeah, right. I hope people will read it, and I hope people will read your book. I found it uh, wonderful. I It was one that I didn't feel like, um, boy, I have to read this because I'm going to do an interview with Colin. It's one that whether I was going to talk to you or not, I was. I, I returned to it with, I was excited to get to the next chapter and loved every bit of it. I, at the end, I kind of felt like you must have felt like the Apostle John who said, there are many more stories I could tell you, <laughs> but uh, I think you've given us the best of, of uh, it, and, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Bob. That's very kind of you to say. Well, we want to thank Colin Hansen for joining us on this edition of The Bounce. I would encourage you to get a copy of Colin's book about Tim Keller. It's called Timothy Keller, and you can find it wherever good books are sold. We've got a link in the show notes. We also have a link to a number of uh, Tim's books that we referenced on this edition of The Bounce. And there's a link to the City to City Network that Redeemer has put together. If you'd like to find out more about what Redeemer City to City is doing in the area of church planting. And again, if you're interested in church planting, finding out about gospel-rich, gospel-centered churches that are being planted all around the country and around the world, go to our website, which is gccollective.org to find out more about the work of the Great Commission Collective. Again, our website, gccollective.org. Now, next time on The Bounce, we're gonna talk about what you're feeling or not feeling or should be feeling. Alistair Groves is gonna join us. He is the president of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation 
He has a new book called Untangling Emotions. He was a recent speaker at the uh, GCC Pastors and Wives Retreat. His message to us was very helpful. I'm looking forward to a conversation with him about how we deal with our own emotions as pastors and how we help those in our congregation process their emotions. That's coming up next time on The Bounce.